Good morning. First case this morning is the state of Gregory Graham versus Ashton Lambert et al. We will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Chief Justices, Associate Justices, my name is Joe Tunstall of the Edgecombe County Bar. I here along with Kevin Vadunas and Peter Tomasak represent the estate of Graham. This time I'd like to, re to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. We're here to ask you to reverse the Court of Appeals and give attorneys in our state clarity as to long existing law. We will not ask you to create any new law. Instead, Your Honors, we will ask you to solidify the test for gross negligence for law enforcement officers who protect us all. We're here to immunize officers when the facts compel it and to allow a rational basis determination of gross negligence when they do not. So what is the problem for us here to resolve? Viewing the light most favorable to the estate, does the record show that there is no genuine issue as to any material fact, and that defendants are entitled to summary judgment in their favor as a matter of law? When no reasonable jury could conclude that the defendant needlessly manifested a reckless indifference to the rights of others. The majority concluded that Officer Lambert's actions were acts of discretion on his part, which may have been negligent, but which were not grossly negligent. That conclusion was not the proper summary judgment analysis, in our opinion. The majority in the Court of Appeals applied 2145 protections every time an officer is emergency response driving. Your Honors, as I will point out in just a moment, emergency response driving is listed nowhere within the statute. When an officer specifically testifies that they are not responding to an emergency, the majority also concluded that an officer's behavior during pursuit is what must be looked at for gross negligence as an issue of law. With that backdrop in mind, the Court of Appeals majority in this case reversed the trial court's decision denying the, the defendant's motion for summary judgment, concluding that Officer Lambert's conduct could not be gross negligence as a matter of law. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> the Court of Appeals majority in this case reversed the trial court's decision. The trial court had originally concluded that Officer Lambert's conduct was gross negligence, and they reversed it, indicating it could not be gross negligence as a matter of law. In reaching that conclusion, the majority's analysis didn't focus on the needlessness of Officer Lambert's actions, whether those actions reflected a reckless indifference to the safety of others on Rayford Road that night. Instead, the majority's analysis turned the gross negligence test into one that was focused not on the officer's conduct, but whether the level of the officer's conduct rose to the same level as that in another case, the Trujan versus Walston. This is why this court's intervention is necessary at this point. Essentially, we have Court of Appeals decisions that are all over the board on this particular issue. First, this court's longstanding precedent makes it clear that gross negligence is to be determined on the facts and circumstances of each case, and is generally a matter best left to the jury. The majority in this case indicated, whenever a law enforcement officer is involved, that that issue should be left to the court. Second, this court's precedent makes it clear that gross negligence analysis focuses 
on the needlessness of an officer's action or their reckless disregard for the consequences of those actions, rather than a mere comparison of whether those actions are as egregious or rise to the same level as that in another case, like Truhan. Third, the plain language makes it clear that the protections do not apply every time an officer is emergency response driving. Emergency response driving is neither listed anywhere in the statute, nor is it something that this court has said is a proper test in this case. Counsel, I have a, a question for you about that. Yes, sir. Um, if we were to agree with you that 20-145 doesn't apply, um, wouldn't your individual capacity claim against Officer Lambert be barred by public official immunity? It's a good question. It would, it would not, Your Honor. Can you help me understand why you think that? Yes, Your Honor. So the, the question, Your Honor, is whether if 2145 doesn't apply, then our individual negligence claim would be barred. And our claim against Officer Lambert is not based on his individual capacity through 2145. 2145 simply says that he has a, that, that he is allowed to speed in certain instances when he's in the apprehension of a, a criminal or when he is, uh, basically there's a car chase, right? So here we have that he is just responding to an incident. He's still in the course and scope. He still falls under every other test that we would have that would allow us to move forward against him in that capacity. He's still working. The only difference is whether or not he is in an emergency response. But <clears throat> I guess this is why I'm, I'm somewhat confused by your argument. Uh, if the officer is acting within the course and scope of his duty and he's responding to a call, um, then under the doctrine of public official immunity, wouldn't he be protected from individual liability as long as he didn't act with malice or corruption? To a point, Your Honor, but what, what I think that, so your original question was whether 20, if, if, if 2145 doesn't apply, that if that would defeat our claim, okay? Right, so you're saying, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying you don't think the statute applies, so set the statute aside. Right. It seems to me then we would be analyzing the individual capacity claim uh, under public official immunity because the officer is a public official. Sure. He was engaged. I think you've conceded, or he was acting within the scope of his duties. Sure. So under our common law and public official immunity, the individual capacity claim would be barred unless he was acted maliciously or corruptly. Uh, so that, I'm trying to understand why, why you think not being under the statute is a benefit. It's a great question. So regardless of whether he's under the statute or not, we're still dealing with the, his actions in this particular case. So your question is, um, is, is whether or not it would be barred under the public official capacity. But we're talking about his individual claim, uh, Your Honor, which would still fall under, uh, let me give you a different analogy. He's responding to an incident just like if he was going down and meeting someone at the courthouse. There's really no difference here. Uh, under either one, he still has liability if he is negligent 
he doesn't fall under the public uh, he, he's not going to fall under an immunity simply because he's an officer no but public official immunity exists precisely to protect public officials from personal liability to protect them from individual capacity claims unless they act maliciously or corruptly and that's why your your argument that he's that that the statute doesn't apply um, confuses me. It seems to me that you would want the statute to apply because you'd rather not be uh, dealing with public official immunity because in that instance you'd have to prevent to prevail you'd have to show malice or corruption. And I understand your argument your honor um, in our research and looking at it we, I am unaware of any case that says that an officer in an individual capacity who is not uh, in, in the purposes of, of arresting or apprehending someone. So in other words, if you, if you take out the, the piece about um, what their behavior is at the time, it's my understanding of the, that it still would not apply in that instance. Every officer is not, does not fall under that immunity from the time they walk out the door until the time they return back to the, to the, uh, to, to their office that night. I think, I think what Justice Allen is getting at is that it's true that if you looked at the public official immunity case law with respect to law enforcement, you would say, well, this seems to be focused on cases involving excessive force because yes. that's, you know, that's sort of the mine run case where this there's the, this argument made. But I think what Justice Allen is saying is that the standard for public official immunity applies um, when you're acting in the scope and authority of the position. And it's a, it applies to more than just law enforcement officers. And that on the undisputed facts here, it seems certain that this officer was acting in the scope and authority of his duty because he was responding to call to someone that needed the aid of law enforcement. So I think that's what Justice Allen is asking. Is it, so wouldn't, don't you almost need the statute here? Because that's the only way you're even getting into the realm of, uh, of gross negligence because it's a much higher standard if the statute doesn't apply. You'd have to show malice. And, and I understand your honors, and, and, and perhaps I'm not understanding the, the, the economy because my understanding um, and, and the way we've briefed this case is, it, is if 2145 doesn't apply, it would actually be regular negligence. Now, we can, whether or not that is appropriate moving forward, I understand, but it's my understanding that if 2145 doesn't apply, then you don't have gross negligence, all you have regular negligence. And I understand there may be an immunity argument there. Uh, but my understanding of that immunity argument is it still would not apply to someone who is, um, yes, they're responding to an incident, but they're not placing themselves in a position that they should have complete immunity simply because they're responding to an incident. And I may have misunderstood or mis well, missed. Let, the, let me ask the you law. this, because maybe, I, I think we might, yeah, we might, we're like ships passing in the night here, I think, a right. little bit. So um, it, in your view, uh, if, there's someone who fell within the criteria of the statute. So gross negligence in a pursuit case. Yes. Could you nevertheless raise, in your view, a public official immunity argument and say that you also have to show malice and corruption? What, what's your view on that? That is an interesting point. So in our research and looking at and preparing for this case, um, that was one of the questions we were having, right? The problem we have is under 2145, we've got an expansion of the law with the Court of Appeals which takes it outside of, uh, uh, outside of the, the clear meaning of the statute, but it does not address a pri an independent right of action under 2145. It simply is, 
under 2145, it simply says that we, we cannot uh, go after them unless there is gross negligence. And even that wasn't, you know, in the 1950s, it was still simple negligence. Uh, and there was no immunity for public official um, in, in the 1950s. In the 1990s, when they took 40 years of jurisprudence under Young, put it out of the way and said, uh, no, you've been reading the statute wrong for 40 years, um, and, and said, no, this was an actual, this is gross negligence. Again, they're still not dealing with the public official immunity. It, sure. I, I haven't seen it raised other than in excessive force cases. But just so I understand, so do you think the pursuit statute is a waiver of public official immunity or, or not? I do not. Okay. If, if the case law on public official immunity, which is pretty big, uh, if, if it shows, as I think it does, uh, that public official immunity has been applied um, to non-law enforcement officers, um, but who are, who are nonetheless government officials, who are acting within the scope of their duties in matters that didn't involve emergencies, would that influence your analysis at all? And, and, and Your Honors, so that I'm, I'm clear, my understanding of the uh, immunity, when I have seen it applied to officers in, in, in research for, in preparation for today, was almost exclusively in an excessive force case. And, uh, and the cases that we're here about here, Truhan, Young, um, Parrish, all deal with some sort of pursuit case. Now, it's hard for us to, to understand a pursuit case when we don't have a pursuit, but it has also been applied in Truhan, right? And so if in Truhan, uh, they applied it even though it was not a pursuit, but it was very closely resembling some of the, the, the facts we have here, then it would allow you to move forward. If your honors are saying that the public duty doctrine would uh, immunize all officers any time they are in their, uh, uh, any time they're, they're operating in the course and scope, I understand that argument. But even outside of 2145, I would still say we have an independent right of action against them. Now, you may say, well, that raises your, your level of proof. We'd need to look at that. But as of our case law right now, any of these cases are under 2145 uh, are looking at a statute that has been expanded, uh, extended to include any time an officer is is emergency response driving. It just raises the level to, to gross negligence. Now, if the legislature meant that, any time an officer uh, is going down to a McDonald's, but they're in their course and scope, and if that's what they actually meant, was that, that, if, that any time they get behind their vehicle, they could have easily put that, just like they have for firefighters. From the time the bell rings till the time they come back, it's gross negligence regardless of the speed that they're that they're operating at. And I, I I'm afraid I have butchered your question. I hope I've come back around. I may not have. Regardless of 2145 and whether it applies in this case, even if it does apply, and uh, uh, Justice Allen and, and Justice Deeds, I, I hope I haven't completely butchered that, but let's, even if it does apply, then our biggest issue with the majority in this case is ignoring the long-standing rule that the evidence must be viewed in the light, in the best light of the non-moving party, so most favorable to the non-moving party, which in this case is the estate. 
So when we look at the facts in this case, we have, uh, first of all, in the, in the trial court, uh, Officer Lambert's conduct um, was acknowledged in the Court of Appeals. They came in and said he was not using his laptop in the moments before the, the wreck. He did not view his computer in the moments before the collision. He had his eyes on the road, not the computer in the moments before the accident, and he braked and took evasive maneuver or swerved to avoid Mr. Graham. Our problem with that is if you immediately go to the dissent and look at the exact same set of facts that are almost completely opposite. We have, 20, we have 18 of 23 seconds looking at his laptop. We have an uh, officer who has admitted it was not an emergency. We have an officer who has admitted that he was uh, veering in and out of his lane. We have an officer who was speeding And under the light most favorable, the facts as applied under the dissent would be a completely different set of facts than what we're actually dealing with in the majority. That's our main issue with the, uh, with the majority's opinion. Officer Lambert told Sergeant McCauley shortly thereafter when he was asked, whether he was looking to get a closer look at the map at the moment, the moment before impact. You make a very distinct movement towards the lap, laptop and appear to be leaning down in, and his only answer at that point is, I just can't tell you, sir, it's all a blur. When you look at the facts in this case in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, I think it's very difficult to find those facts as found by the majority I think using long-standing North Carolina law would lead one to believe that the facts as uh, outlined by the dissent would raise to the level of gross negligence in this particular case. Gross negligence is not an issue of law except in rare cases. That's our other issue. Should this be a gatekeeper function at the trial court level when we have enough facts to move forward. In other words, the North Carolina Association of Defense Attorneys has uh, argued in its brief that the court should resolve factual issues at the summary judgment stage when gross negligence claims are brought against government actors. Again, nowhere can we find that law, nowhere in the, um, uh, is there any site to an actual uh, law that allows us to move forward with that. They've indicated that our courts are willing to apply fact-intensive tests that may differ from case to case rather than immunized actors facing the burdens of trial. Again, what we have here is a level of facts that, Justice, that Judge Jackson has indicated could lead to a reasonable jury to determine that this was gross negligence, that the trial court looked at and indicated could lead a reasonable jury to gross negligence. And on that point, I find that the, uh, the majority and the North Carolina Association of Defense Attorneys are just wrong. So we look at Ray versus North Carolina Department of Transportation, which indicates that negligence is to be determined on the facts and circumstances of each case and is a matter generally left to the jury. We also look at Smith and Kaiser, and we still come back to one point, 
which is the only time gross negligence becomes a question of law for the court, is when reasonable men would not differ as to the proper conclusion to be drawn. That's our argument here. Essentially, that if the court steps in at that point and says uh, that based on our facts that the Court of Appeals have looked at that are completely different from those facts looked at by the dissent, could a reasonable person draw a conclusion that this is gross negligence? That's why we think, regardless of the statute, that this case should go back down. It's clear that a look at, look at the facts in the light most favorable to the non-moving party would remand this case to the lower courts. At a minimum, this court should use this case to reiterate that the only time gross negligence becomes a question of law for the courts is when reasonable men would not differ as to the proper conclusion to be drawn, which is opposite from the briefing that has been done in this case. Can, can I ask you to turn to the issue relating to the um, city's liability here? And in particular, um, my question there is um, on the issue of whether the complaint adequately pled that there was a waiver of sovereign immunity. As I understand it, Am I correct that the only thing on appeal here is the summary judgment order? That is correct, Your Honor. So isn't the question at summary judgment whether the insurance policy that is in the record, you, and you agree the insurance policy here is in the record? Yes, Your Honor. Isn't the only question for us whether that, at summary judgment on the issue of liability for the city, whether that insurance policy waives sovereign immunity? Uh, thank you, Your Honor, and, and yes, under the pleading issue that we have here today, the question is whether uh, Rule 8, which states that uh, plaintiff sets form a claim for relief and uh, a short and plain statement of the claim. But, 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 this is, but this is exactly my question. Why is it a pleading issue? Why isn't, since we are at summary judgment, why isn't the issue whether the plaintiff has come forward with sufficient evidence to either establish or at least create a genuine issue of material fact as to whether or not sovereign immunity was waived. And, and that's a good question. I, I believe under the Ray versus City of Greensboro case, uh, a complaint should not be dismissed under Rule 12b-6 unless it affirmatively appears. So essentially, when we're, what the court appears to have done at the trial level is, is reduce this back to a 12b-6 decision at the summary judgment stage. Um, and, and I could be wrong, but that's certainly what it appears that they have done. And so the Supreme Court has held that the a complaint must specifically allege a waiver of governmental immunity. The Supreme Court then came back in Ray and said that requirement does not, however, mandate that you use any particular language. So when you put the two of those together, what we have is six different instances in the complaint of the plaintiff raising the issue. It's, it's, we're suing them specifically pursuant to NCGS 160A485 and they, they listed that six different times. So we're a notice pleading state. They're on notice pleading that it has been raised at six different instances. And the answer, page two of the answer specifically says, the city has not waived its immunity from suit. If you're, if you're looking at notice pleading and their answer is, we are not waiving immunity from suit in response to a pleading under 168485, clearly they're on notice. And that was in six different instances of the complaint. 
in multiple instances. Is there anything else in that statute other than the reference to a waiver of immunity if, with the purchase of insurance? And, and Justice Teets, I may be missing. So what I'm getting at is, is there anything else, if you just cited the statute, is there anything else in that statute that a reader could look at and say, oh, this could be a reference to something other than the purchase of insurance and therefore a waiver of, of the immunity? With all the facts that they had laid out ahead of time, I, I, yes, there are other things in the what statute, none of is, them would be relevant. That's what I'm asking. Is, yes, there's nothing. If there could be some confusion about what that references to, you can see an argument that you didn't do enough. You need to spell out what we're citing the statute because we're saying that insurance has been purchased and that's waived immunity. So my question to you is what else in that statute could someone think you were referencing there in a, in a pleading if you re reference the statute? With all the facts out above, absolutely nothing. And, and the, the second part is their exact response to that statute being set out was the city is not waiving its immunity. At that point, th th there's no question that they're on notice that the uh, city is not waiving its immunity in response to that particular pleading. Um, so, uh, uh, Justice, that would, uh, to, to me, there's nothing else in the statute that would be relevant, having read the statute, to the rest of the complaint. I believe, Justice, I've reserved five minutes. If there's no other questions, I will uh, hold my five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. I'm Stephen Bader from Cranfield, Sumner, and Raleigh. And here with my colleague, James Thornton, we represent the city of Fayetteville and Officer Ashton Lambert. There's two issues before this court. The first is whether the plaintiffs have shown gross negligence by Officer Lambert. That is before this court on a dissent from an appeal, or from the Court of Appeals, I should say. Uh, this court should affirm on that point because the plaintiffs have not brought forth evidence of gross negligence by Officer Lambert. The second issue is whether the plaintiffs have pleaded sufficient facts to show that the city waived its governmental immunity. That issue is before this court on our petition for discretionary review. On that point, this court should reverse because the plaintiffs did not plead any particular facts to show that governmental immunity had been waived. I'll start with the gross negligence issue General Statute 20-145 sets the standard of care for officers that speed in the chase or apprehension of a suspected law violator, and that standard is gross negligence. Before you go any further, can I ask you kind of a foundational question? Do you think public official immunity applies to an officer who's on their way to respond to a call? Yes, Justice Dietz, and let me, let me give the background to how this, how this issue in this case gets before this court, because I think that, that might be helpful. The lawsuit includes individual capacity claims against Officer Lambert, as well as official capacity claims against Officer Lambert and a claim against the city. We move the same thing, aren't they? Th those claims are correct. Right. We move for summary judgment raising public official immunity as to the individual capacity claim, governmental immunity as to the tort claims, and, and that the evidence did not meet the 20-145 gross negligence standard as to the official capacity claims against Officer Lambert and the city. When we get to the Court of Appeals, the plaintiff agreed in, that the individual capacity claim should be dismissed. They made no argument that public official immunity wouldn't attach. 
And that's important because the only issue then that was before the Court of Appeals other than the waiver issue that I'll hit on at the end was whether the evidence showed gross negligence. And there had never been any argument by the plaintiff at that point, nor is it brought up in the dissent, that 20-145 doesn't set the standard of care. I think that's important as the court looks at the issues before it today because that's the question. Does this evidence meet gross negligence under this court's precedent? Not whether the statute applies at all. I, I would add on that point this though. The court has taken a broad application of 20-145 in deciding whether it applies. When you look at Young versus Woodall, you have an officer at that point that was following a vehicle for an equipment violation, a headlight out. If you look at Jones versus City of Durham, that's a case that this court reversed for reasons set forth in the Court of Appeals dissent. That officer was called to provide backup to a situation without giving any particulars as to what he was going to do. And in Truhan versus Walston, which the plaintiffs have discussed today, that's a Court of Appeals opinion, there you have an officer that, that's dispatched to provide backup and assist with traffic flow after a minor property damage claim. So this court's precedent and the Court of Appeals precedent has taken a broad construction as to when this applies, when an officer is, is in his duties, is, is involved in apprehending or, or uh, chasing suspected law violators and would be entitled to the standard of care. So I guess this is, I think, part of my confusion. So you, the parties agree that the pursuit statute waives governmental immunity for a government entity? Because there's no officer in the case anymore, you're telling me that, and the only defendant is the government. Justice Dietz, I, I have a twofold answer. I think, number one, that's not really been presented to this court. We, we have never taken that position. I think that the case law on that is, is a touch confusing. Um, Young versus Woodall suggests that governmental immunity would not attach. That if the case is, that if it's a 20-145 case, what we're looking at at that point is whether the gross negligence standard has been met. I believe that's also touched on by the Court of Appeals in Truhan. But to be clear, that is not a position that we have taken in this case. The position that we maintained at the Court of Appeals level and in our briefing here today is that the facts don't show gross negligence. And 20-145 is a policy choice by the General Assembly. What it recognizes is that our peace officers are called to act fast, to protect and serve, and to protect public safety. And when they do that, ordinary negligence is not the standard of care. It's gross negligence. And in Parrish versus Hill, this court discussed that policy and talked about it as a balancing act. That what officers are doing is balancing the need to chase and apprehend suspected law violators with the need to prevent the public from any unreasonable risks of harm. And so the result of that policy and that balancing test is that these cases are different and that these cases come up before our trial courts and our appellate courts on summary judgment to decide if the evidence that the plaintiff has presented is sufficient to create a triable gross negligence question. When we look at this particular case and how the Court of Appeals resolve this case, we start with this court's precedent. And what we're doing is comparing the facts of other cases to the facts here to decide if gross negligence has been shown. And we start with Young versus Woodall in 1996 opinion from this court. The facts of that case are you have an officer at 2, 2 a.m. who sees a vehicle with a headlight out. And he does a U-turn to, to, to start to pursue that vehicle. The officer makes a deliberate decision not to turn on his lights and siren 
because in his experience, that may cause the motorist to try to elude him. The officer then speeds, exceeds the 45 mile an hour speed limit, goes through a yellow light, and causes a wreck with the plaintiff. And what this court, what the argument that the plaintiff advanced in that case is very similar to the argument we're seeing here. That, the, that these officers' decisions, that they were needless. He didn't need to do a U-turn and follow this guy with the headlight out. If he was going to do that, certainly he didn't need to wait to turn on his lights and siren. I mean, after all, that's a minor equipment violation. There's no reason to lie in wait, so to speak, with somebody who committed that offense. I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but I'm just really struggling to piece this case together. So I'm looking at this line in um, Young versus Woodall, where the court, after analyzing all the gross negligence analysis that you're describing, says, concludes that Officer Woodall is not liable, and then says, if Officer Woodall is not liable, the city is not liable under the doctrine of respondeat superior summary judgment should have been allowed for the city. How can that be uh, if it was official capacity analysis? Wouldn't that be that they were examining individual capacity and then examining whether, because what is responding out superior, how does that apply in an official capacity suit? Well, I, I think Justice Dietz, they are, as you said earlier, they're one and the same. An official capacity claim is really the same as a claim against the city. Well, that's why I'm trying to figure out why the court would have been describing responding out superior. Is if the only claim that you can bring here is the official capacity suit, then uh, I would think they would just be describing it not as the officer at all. You sued the, the government. I think that's right, Your Honor, and I, I can't speak to why the, that piece of the opinion is written that way, but I would say the effect of that is really the same thing that we're arguing here, which is that court is judging the officer's conduct just like this court is doing saying it doesn't meet that standard. And I guess the extension of that to the extent that the claims aren't looked at as one and the same would be that the city's liability would be non-existent under that doctrine. I think, I, I hesitate to speculate as to why that opinion is read that way. I don't think it changes the outcome that we're asking for here or, or changes the analysis in any way. Has this court ever ruled that that 20-145 operates as a waiver of governmental immunity? Justice Allen, I, I'm not sure I have a great answer to that question. I believe that Young versus Woodall suggests that. I don't know if it goes that far as announcing that as a ruling, and I believe that's also suggested in the Truhan versus Walston decision. Would you agree that there's no express waiver in 20-145? of governmental immunity. I, I, I would agree that the statute, I, I, I would say this, the statute doesn't, doesn't contemplate it. And, one and, way and aren't we supposed to construe waivers narrowly? Yes, yes. And so I'm just, it, it's interesting to me that the last sentence in the statute says that, that the exemption, that is the exemption of following the uh, restrictions on speed, um, will not protect the driver of any vehicle who, um, from the consequence of the reckless disregard of the safety of others. So that, to me, indicates you know, a waiver of public official immunity. But, but if the intent here was to waive the immunity of, of government entities, why wouldn't we have had some kind of language in there like that? I'm not sure I'm tracking 
strictly with your question. I, I look at. In other words, there's governmental official. There's governmental immunity that protects the city. There's public official immunity that protects the officer as long as the officer is operating within the scope of his duties and without malice or corruption. The last sentence in 2145 seems to carve out an exception to that public official immunity for the officer, but I don't see any language in the statute that carves out an exception to the city's immunity. I, I, th I think I think the question here is uh, you seem to be conceding that that the statute operates as a waiver of governmental immunity by saying the city's liable if there was gross negligence, and, and why are you arguing that point? I, is the question because your honor that is the position we've taken throughout this case I believe that's what the case law shows as to the individual capacity claims those are subject to public official immunity the plaintiff has already conceded at the Court of Appeals level that that immunity would attach and there is no individual capacity claim so the position that we have taken throughout this case I'm confused as to why they would have conceded that given the last sentence in 20-145 but I'm also confused as to why you would concede that it's a, a waiver of governmental immunity when there's nothing in the statute that says that. It seems like you, well. Well, and, and Your Honor, the, the best I can answer that question is that's never been the position that we've taken in this case. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the issue with governmental immunity really is how this case came before the trial court, which is there is a negligence claim asserted against the city. To pursue that claim, there would have to be a pleading, some facts alleged that the city waived its governmental immunity. That's why we raised that defense. But as to the underlying cond alleged conduct of the officer in his official capacity, that's subject to the 20-145 standard. And our, our, our belief and our position at that time, and I think it, it is our position today, is that that does not operate, at, that governmental immunity would not apply to a, a claim brought under 20-145. I don't think we can raise that argument at this point because we've never made that argument. And so as you look back to Young, which is really the guiding decision here on the gross negligence standard, the court says all the, all the behavior of the officer, choosing not to turn on his lights and sirens, choosing to speed to catch up, not yielding the yellow light, those are all discretionary acts. And that they may be negligent, but they're not grossly negligent. And that is the same determination made by the Court of Appeals in this case. And when you look at the facts here, they're, they're a very neat match with what we see in Young. You've got an officer who gets a call that's described as a domestic with a firearm. That's what he is told. And his testimony is he viewed that as a call that required a rapid response from him. Not necessarily an emergency response with lights and siren going as fast as he can, but a call that he needed to hustle to the kind of call that officers get when they're on duty. And then he gets out in the scene and he judges field conditions. And he says, I'm out on Rayford Road in Fayetteville. It's six lanes of traffic in a middle lane. There is minimal traffic on the road. It's midnight. I think that an appropriate speed under these conditions given where I'm going is 10 miles or so over the speed limit. Just like in Young, that's a discretionary decision. And again, he is, he, again, taking the, the plaintiff's evidence, looking at his laptop to confirm the address of where he's going, general statute lets him do that. The General Assembly has seen fit to say that officers can do that. Again, that's a discretionary act, and if you look at the field conditions, 
he's got no reason to expect there to be any pedestrians in the middle of the six-lane thoroughfare. And you can contrast those facts with what we see in Jones versus City of Durham. Again, that's a decision where this court reversed for the reasons set forth in a dissent. And in that case, you had an officer called for backup, not given any particulars about why he's needed at 9 o'clock in the morning. And that officer knows that to get where he needs to go, he has to go through an intersection that's been the scene of prior accidents. He knows it's problematic. He testifies 45 miles an hour is the fastest speed to go through that intersection. And he testifies that he knew there was pedestrians on the, in that intersection at that time. And despite that knowledge, he goes somewhere between 50 to 74 miles an hour to the scene without his lights and siren on. He goes so fast that he actually jumps a railroad crossing. There's testimony that his vehicle is airborne. And when his vehicle comes back down, he sees the plaintiff trying to cross the road almost 300 feet away. And then he makes a decision. He says, I'm going to accelerate and steer in one direction instead of braking because that's how I'm going to avoid this collision, loses control of his vehicle and strikes and injures the plaintiff. Those facts are really the near polar opposite of what's before this court here. You've got an officer with field conditions at midnight where there is no reason for him to expect any pedestrians on the roadway. In addition, you've got Mr. Graham stepping in front of his vehicle seconds before this accident happens. Officer Lambert did not have a football field to make a decision about it where he's going to brake, accelerate, or turn. The facts in Jones are the kind of facts that this court and the legislature contemplated to give rise to a triable gross negligence claim against an officer, but, so not the facts here. Let me just ask you in terms of, again, remembering we're, we are taking the facts in the light most favorable to the plaintiff. And does it make a difference how long, in, in, in your analysis of whether there was, whether these facts could lead a reasonable jury to conclude that there was gross negligence. Doesn't it make a difference how long he was looking at his laptop? Um, I, I understand your point that the statutes give him the right to have a laptop in his car and to consult it for the address. But, it, but if, the, if the evidence from the body cam and the dashboard camera um, can help a jury assess how long he might have been staring at his laptop, um, doesn't that, isn't that an important fact as well that isn't present in some of these other cases? Not under the totality of the circumstances, and that gets back to the field conditions that we're talking about. But, but surely at some point, you know, if he was driving along and, and, and was spending, you know, two minutes, which is a really long time, two minutes looking at his laptop, wouldn't that be grossly negligent? Well, those aren't the facts before this court, Justice Searles. I mean, we don't have evidence of him focused on his laptop to such a degree that he's not driving. What... At best, we have evidence that he's looking there to confirm where he's going. I, I would point out, and I don't want to go too far down this path, you know, the undisputed record evidence before this court is that he braked and steered to his left within a second of Mr. Graham stepping in front of his vehicle. That, that evidence has never been refuted. It's just the theory is that that's not what happened, but that's what the evidence shows. But I think more important, and, and hopefully to your question, even if you take for granted that he was looking at the laptop, it wasn't for more than a couple seconds at a time. And again, the field conditions are such, six-lane thoroughfare, minimal traffic at midnight, 
He's got no reason to, put, to expect a pedestrian to be out in the middle of the road. And all of those facts, and that's what he knows at the time that he's responding to this domestic with a firearm that in his mind required a rapid response, don't rise to the level of gross negligence. It's a unique fact. Every case is going to have some unique facts. It doesn't move the needle to gross negligence. And I think as we look at really the effect of this case, it's important to look at Parrish versus Hill, which is, I think, this court's second decision on gross negligence. That's a hot pursuit case. That's a case where officers see somebody speeding, just speeding, uh, going, I think, 80 miles an hour through Chapel Hill. There is a chase that ensues, goes on about 10 miles or so, I believe, multiple miles into Chapel Hill and Durham, ultimately ends with the suspect vehicle crashing and the passenger is killed. It Parrish, the court, does a, does a nice discussion of the policy behind the statute, the balancing act, and concludes that uh, on these facts, again, the field conditions, what the officers were faced with at 2 o'clock in the morning and trying to protect public safety and the risk of the speeder, that the officer's pursuit was not grossly negligent. And following Parrish, the Court of Appeals has dealt with a lot of these hot pursuit cases, Lunsford versus Wren, Villapig versus the city of Danville, Norris versus Zambito, Green versus Greenville. There are plenty of others that are cited in the briefing. And I mention those now for this very important reason of what happens at this level. On an objective standpoint, I think there's an argument that can be made that officers driving 120, 130 miles an hour on the bumper of a fleeing vehicle during the day on a two-lane road going in and out of traffic creates a greater public safety risk than the facts before this court, even though this isn't a hot pursuit case. And so if this court were to reverse and accept what is set forth in the dissent and that the plaintiffs have argued for here, it unsettles all of that hot pursuit law. Now all of that case law that recognizes that officers have a tough job, it's hard for them and they have to make these decisions and engage in these pursuits is now unsettled. And it becomes totally unclear what gross negligence even means at that point. Unless the court has any questions on the gross negligence issue, I'm happy to turn to the immunity waiver, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So all, just to be clear, uh, all the discussion of, of immunities in the Court of Appeals opinion and the, dissent, the majority opinion of the dissent, because there's a lot about like public official immunity, there's other stuff, none of that should have been in there, is what, because you, that was never in the case at that stage to begin with? I don't know the answer to that question, Justice Dietz, and the reason being is because these cases, as you know, they take on a life of their own as they come up. I mean, at the summary judgment phase, we said, we've got governmental immunity as to these negligence claims. We've got public official immunity as to the individual capacity claims. We've got, the evidence doesn't show gross negligence on, as to the 20-145 standard of care. And there was also a, a contributory negligence defense that was brief just given you know, the very unfortunate situation here, which is a gentleman with a blood alcohol concentration of 0.31 walking across a six-lane thoroughfare. So that was really four issues before, before the court on summary judgment. And Judge Mary Ann Talley in Cumberland County denied it altogether other than to dismiss the police department as an improperly named entity. So when we went up on appeal, we argued it all because we had to. 
And when it came back to the plaintiffs to respond, at that point they said they conceded individual capacity claims should go because he has public official immunity. They engaged us on the waiver argument saying, no, we did plead enough to show a waiver. And then, of course, a 20-145 argument, which is really the meat of the case. And, of course, contrib as well. And then the Court of Appeals majority opinion ultimately didn't get to the contributory negligence question. That's probably a long-winded answer to say they maybe could have done it different. The Court of Appeals could have said, look, we don't need to get into this governmental immunity waiver because it doesn't cover 20-145. But that's not what they did. And I think that's important because what, what they set forth in the opinion is just by, and I think this is a very narrow argument. I mean, here, really what they're saying is all you need to do is say I'm suing you under the statute. I'm suing you under 168-485. And if you just say that and nothing more, that's enough to plead a waiver of governmental immunity. On that point, we respectfully disagree. I mean, this court's precedent has always said even with notice pleading, it's not pleading a legal theory. But if, but if you take the position that, that 20-145 is a statutory waiver of immunity, then what does it matter? Well, and I think that's what I was trying to get at should, before. Should, should we, are, are you saying we need to correct the Court of Appeals statement on what the law is, or should we say uh, the Court of Appeals shouldn't have reached that question because there's a statutory waiver that is operative here? The, this court needs to correct what the Court of Appeals said because we believe it's inaccurate. It misstates the pleading standard. It lowers the pleading standard for governmental immunity. And there's, and there's another misstatement as to the effect of that. So if, and I'm sorry, I'm just trying to understand your position. Uh, if you think 20-145 is a waiver of governmental immunity, then why raise a governmental immunity defense? Because when this case originally went before the court on summary judgment, there was just garden variety negligence claims against the city and those claims would be subject to governmental immunity. So it's to protect you from any, any right. claim that might not be we, covered by We were raising all the defenses that we had at that point that were appropriate, and that was one of them. And I so, But aren't those, those claims are not in the case anymore. Am I correct about that? Because didn't you say any individual capacity claims are abandoned now? The individual capacity claims, so, yes. So why would we reach the issue of whether they were properly pleaded? They're, not, they're out of the case. Because the Court of Appeals reached the issue and, and reached an issue that's, or, or reached a result, I'm sorry, that's not correct. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's starting to seem to me like the Court of Appeals, just like me, did not understand what claims were actually in the case. Um, and so, uh, so maybe what the, the thing here is they never should have reached that. They, they, they were analyzing negligence claims that, without understanding the part that has been abandoned. Right, and I think, I think, Maybe a different way to look at it is that the negligence claims are really subsumed by 20-145, which sets the standard of care. And I think that's absolutely right. I think, I think what the Court of Appeals could have done is they could have said, we don't need to consider this governmental immunity waiver argument because the only claim that's left is this tort claim that's set, governed by 20-145 and done it that way. But they didn't. And that's, that, that's problematic for municipalities across the state because that opinion, that published opinion, now creates this impression that all any plaintiff needs to do to allege a governmental immunity has been waived is just 
say I'm suing you under the statute without pleading the particular facts that show why that immunity has been waived. I agree it is a very technical and perhaps esoteric argument, but it's important because this court has consistently said you got to plead facts. And in fact, pleading a, a waiver of governmental immunity is so important that if you don't do it, your claim is still subject to dismissal, even if discovery reveals that immunity, in fact, has been waived by the purchase of insurance. So I actually think I got, I'm sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. I, I'm confused again. Okay. So are, are you saying, I'm talking the pursuit statute now. Your position is, if you allege a claim under the pursuit statute, that statute is a waiver of governmental immunity, right? So if you allege a claim under that statute, you don't even need to allege that there's insurance because there, any immunity has been waived. Yes, but I, I don't think it's so much that you're alleging the claim under the statute. It's that that statute sets the standard of care, whether as the plaintiff you call it a, a negligence claim or a gross negligence claim. And I, and I, and I appreciate it. Yeah, because you know where I'm struggling. I do. The only reason that you have to resort to you bought insurance is because the claims you're bringing otherwise would be barred by governmental immunity. If a claim under the pursuit statute is not barred by governmental immunity because there's a waiver there, you don't need to say there's insurance or anything else. Right, and, and, and the best I can answer is we go back to how we defended this case at the summary judgment stage. Because at that point, we've just got a negligence claim against the city, and there hadn't been any pleading that governmental immunity had been waived. And that was an appropriate defense in our view to raise at that point, even if a secondary defense would be all of your tort claims are subject to the standard of care and your evidence doesn't meet it. And I, I, think, I think the best I can say is it, it is probably fair for this court, certainly Justice Deeds, for you to look at this and say the Court of Appeals really didn't need to get there. And I can't disagree with that, but the best I can say is it did. So, so parties can't stipulate to the law. Um, suppose, right. suppose we don't agree that 20-145 is a waiver of governmental immunity, then what do we do? Then at that point, I think on this, this issue that's before the court on a PDR, if this court says 20-145, uh, those claim, claims that are subject to that standard of care, I want to try to be as accurate as I can, toward claims subject to that standard of care can be subject to governmental immunity if the court makes that decision, then the question is going to be, is there sufficient facts pleaded in the complaint to show that, that we waive governmental immunity? And our position would be no, and that could resolve the entire case. Does the insurance policy in this case have the sort of standard language now in these policies that you are, they're only waiving government immunity if it's been waived by the government? The, the, the endorsement in this case, to, to be candid, likely would result in immunity being waived. There is an endorsement, but the language is such, and I don't know it verbatim, that a, a, a court or an appellate court would likely conclude that it does not. Okay, so it's not the one that we've seen in a series of recent cases. Right. That, okay, thank you. Right. Um, to, to wrap up here, on the gross negligence issue, this is a very sad case, but Officer Lambert's discretionary decisions did not amount to a conscious or reckless disregard for the rights and safety of others. To hold otherwise is going to unsettle a lot of case law in this area and create vast uncertainty for law enforcement officers trying to do their job. 
And on the waiver issue, we would simply ask the court to recognize, appreciating that it's here on a strange posture, the plaintiffs do need to do need to plead Thank facts. You, counsel. Showing waiver. Time's expired. Thank you. Thank you. Rebuttal. Thank you, and I'll try to be brief. The issues raised by Justice Allen and Justice Deeds, I think, go to kind of the confusion and the, the issues that we are uh, we're trying to brief and trying to get uh, across to the court. Uh, essentially, the reason that the waiver was so important to, to us on the, on the pleading issue is it is our position that once, uh, in, once uh, governmental immunity is waived with the purchase of insurance, then if 2145 doesn't apply, we have standard negligence, but it's only in the official capacity. And you caught me off guard for a second. I had to sit down and think about it because, of course, it was dismissed at the Court of Appeals issue uh, level. And I, I, I honestly have looked at this as an official capacity claim ever since. But even in the official capacity, once but the, the, the Court of Appeals opinion discusses public official immunity. They do. Okay. So that, they just shouldn't have been in there, and you, but you all left that alone because you're like, we don't know what these folks are talking about, but that's not in the case for us. Is that what happened? I would not say that out loud, but pretty much. Okay. Yeah. So essentially there were, and that wasn't the only portion of the, of, of that. We just kind of left alone. Um, and we uh, appealed what, what we determined to be the, the better issue to, to bring up. Um, but essentially once, if we have the purchase of insurance and it's, and it's sufficiently pled in a notice pleading state, um, and the defendant has filed an answer indicating they understand that's what we're, we're pleading. Um, then in the official capacity complaint, uh, the official capacity claims should move forward as to the officer. Now the question is about 2145, and again, when you have strange pleading getting up to uh, this level, then you have bad facts and bad law. But, but essentially, regardless of how we got up here, that's the issue. Um, in, in conclusion, I want to briefly address some of the facts under 2145 and some of the facts that arise to the level of, of gross negligence. So we have a statute that allows an officer to look at a laptop, but nothing in that statute says it's okay to stop watching the road. And nothing in that statute says it's okay to stop watching the road for 18 of the 23 seconds prior to impact. We have a statute that allows the officer to speed, but nothing in that statute says, don't comply with your requirements pursuant to your own job in your own city and don't turn on your lights and siren. We have a statute that allows them to look at a laptop, but nothing says weave in and out of your lane as you're going down the road. We have statutes that allow these officers to go out and do their job, but they also involve being reasonable within that. So I was looking at needless. And if you look up needless and just look at the simple idea of needless, we're not lowering the level of gross negligence. But if you look at needless, it is something that just doesn't need to happen. So if he's the third vehicle to respond to an ordinary incident and he specifically testifies it was not an emergency and there's no hurry to get there, and if you look at the videotape and he spends 18 of 23 seconds playing with the trackpad, which he finally admits to in deposition, 
could a reasonable jury believe that rises to the level of gross negligence? It's our position it does, and we would ask you to reverse. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, everyone. Mr. Clark.